You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Noah Ron Ressler. Thank you for joining us. For tonight's show, WICB news correspondent Christian Maytree talks to a local beekeeper about the importance of bees and how he got into beekeeping. Correspondent Caroline Grass looks into the return of Ithaca College's in-person theater season, and correspondent Michael Memis talks to the director of One Pollster, a Siena College research institute that does polls in the state as well as other states in the region. But first, we have Grant Johnson and myself with Community Beat. Spotted lanternflies continue to pose a threat to Ithaca as another one has been found on the Seneca Street garage. The insect is likely from the same infestation that was reported at an apartment building near the intersection of Stewart Avenue and University Avenue, according to city forester Jean Grace. Lanternflies are not the best flyers, which led Grace to come to this conclusion. Upon further investigation, inspectors from the state examined the garage to check for any adults or egg masses, but didn't find anything. Grace said the first plan of action would be to cut down trees with egg masses on them and urge the public to be vigilant, especially while traveling. After hundreds of students tested positive within the first few weeks of in-person classes, Cornell University has finally entered the green zone in terms of COVID cases. This drastic case reduction has allowed Cornell to restart the campus-to-campus bus service to New York City. Passengers will either need to be fully vaccinated or have a negative COVID test within 72 hours of the ride. On Saturday, September 18th, the St. James AME Zion Church commenced an archaeological excavation to help understand the church's role in helping the Underground Railroad free escaped slaves. The project is scheduled to last nine weeks, with digging being done on Saturdays from September 18th to November 13th. Dr. Lori Ketchadorian, an associate professor of archaeology at Cornell, who is directing the excavation, encouraged people in the community to take part in the project, saying she would like as many community participants as can be accommodated and that it is not too late to get started. The formerly incarcerated residents of Tompkins County can have a hard time finding housing considering the high cost of living. To combat this, nonprofit housing provider Ithaca Neighborhood Housing Services and a partner of the Cornell Cooperative Extension, Ultimate Reentry Opportunity for Tompkins County, have planned a transitional housing program called Sunflower Houses. This program will not only provide affordable housing for formerly incarcerated residents, but it will also provide structure and coordinated roles, as well as training and assistance finding sustainable employment. Ultimately, the goal of the Sunflower Houses is to reduce the prohibiting factors that prevent the formerly incarcerated from re-entering society, allowing people to independently make the stable transition. For Noah Rand Wrestler, I'm Grant Johnson. Welcome back to Ithaca Now on 92 WICB. I'm your host, Noah Ron Wrestler. Have you ever been going about your day and just wondered, what role do bees even play in the environment around us? Why do beekeepers do what they do, and what should we know about bees other than the fact that they produce honey? WICB News correspondent Christian Maytree tried to find an answer to questions like these in his conversation with local beekeeper Michael Rowell, co-owner, along with his wife, of Ithaca Honeyworks, a local bee farm. Those are honeybees from Ithaca Honeyworks, and you're hearing the bees storing processed nectar in what's called a honey super, which are used to harvest honey. I was an animal science major at Cornell, um, and uh, 
I kind of ran out of my my requirements courses, and so seniorish year, I was just browsing the catalog. I saw a beekeeping class. I was like, that fits in my schedule. That's pretty neat. I'd love to learn that. That's Michael Rowell, master beekeeper and co-owner, along with his wife of Ithaca Honeyworks, a local bee farm that produces honey and other products. I have an older brother who's an engineer. Uh, he had just bought a house, started brewing in his basement. So I figured, all right, well, you can ferment honey too and, and make beverages. And it wasn't the, the wave of uh, startup meteries was small at that point. So I figured, all right, maybe I can catch this wave eventually. Um, and do that. And so I learned a lot through the wines courses, some brewing courses, um, but that's where I got my, my kind of formal education was uh, through those courses and the experience I gained in the, the lab course for beekeeping. Raoul was explaining to me that beekeeping has been capturing the interest of quite a few people in recent years. So in like the 2000... Eight was when true colony collapse disorder blew through a lot of the commercial operations. Bee colonies were coming out of spring looking perfectly healthy, getting to the first pollination site. One day great, dead the next day. You've probably heard the phrase save the bees, and the idea that bees are important. And they are. Here's why. They are livestock. Uh, they are very important to our food systems, um, they pollinate a good portion of, of what we use for food. One is that the American food production system is reliant on honeybees. Uh, even though honeybees are non-native to North America, uh, at this point we, uh, we need them to produce the amount of food that we need to produce in the way that we produce it. That's Jason Hamilton, professor of environmental studies and sciences and head of Ithaca College's apiary, or collection of beehives. Secondly, um, uh, honeybees is it's agricultural, it's food, right? So there's uh, things like honey. They'll put all their bees on a flat, big flatbed truck, bring them to someone's farm, someone's gigantic orchard monoculture thing, drop them down for a few weeks, whatever the flowering time is for that uh, particular crop and uh, then when that's done they'll pick them back up move to the next crop which is great you know we get a lot of food that way it's super important but what is bad and I think what the public has gotten more awareness of it, because of COVID is when you take a population and you move it somewhere new and just keep moving that around Whatever disease you have, diseases and stuff you have with it is going and spreading with you. There's a lot of stressors on, on just bees in general, and so and you mentioned several of them there. Raising bees simply for pollinating crops is extremely stressful on the bees. It becomes kind of industrial agriculture, uh, and industrial agriculture kind of bee pollination services uh, is very stressful on a beehive. And if you add in then uh, stress from things like pesticide exposure and, um, and viruses and 
other pests and diseases than just a lot of those colonies. They just don't do very well. They're small, they die. But with any other animal, you're, you're taking care of them. You're managing for pests and diseases, their nutrition, their overall health. And so that's what we do as a beekeeper is, you know, we work with the bees biology and the way they work, you know, as a hive and as a super organism and we fit their needs, you know, so they need more room we have more room, they need more food, we have more food, you know, and so it's, it's a balance. That's Emily O'Neill, a recently graduated senior at IC and master beekeeper at IC's apiary. She went through a 15-month certification process to get where she is today. I guess I first encountered the apiary my freshman year during our environmental science and technology class. We came down here as like a field trip and Jason kind of gave us a tour. That was kind of like my first first experience down here and then I kind of just fell in love. Like I've always loved animals and I was trying to figure out kind of what I wanted to do with my college career and what I wanted to do in the future and this is just something that I was like, it just clicked. There's also the fact that, you know, there's not a lot of women, minority, uh, business enterprises that are ag related. It's it's a very underrepresented population. Bees themselves are not very cheap either. Uh, so it's it's a high barrier of entry for anyone wanting to get started. Um, have one or two hives. It's like almost six hundred dollars to, to get properly started. What I wanted to find out about was policy. Have lawmakers put anything in place to protect these invaluable creatures? You know, during the Obama administration, there was the, they put into place the, the pollinator program. It helped universities do more research on how pesticides and fungicides from general agriculture was affecting bees because the whole colony collapse thing had still kind of was recent in everyone's mind and, and we were trying to understand what was going on. And so what the new legislation tries to do is get that, have more of an awareness of that data so that we know how much money, tax money to allot to research and resources for beekeeping, the beekeeping industry to keep bees and pollinators healthy. For WYCB News, I'm Christian Matry. Through the numerous stories done on this topic over the last year and a half, it has become all but evident that the performing arts were one of the worst affected industries during the pandemic. Now, with the return of the in-person semester, the Ithaca College Theatre Department has also returned with a new season and a lot of enthusiasm. WICB News correspondent Caroline Grass takes us through the expectations and thoughts of some of those closely involved with the season. Reporting for WICB News, I'm Caroline Grass. The Ithaca College Theatre Department has announced the theatre season for 2021 and 2022 and called the season a celebration of the return of live theatre to the school. In 2020, the fall theatre shows were all virtual and in the spring, there were many restrictions to ensure the safety of students and faculty. This fall marks the return of audiences of students and the general public. I talked with senior Rachel Powells, the production dramaturg for the first show of the season, about what it will be like to be back on stage with a full audience. 
Rachel described a dramaturg as the person who curates the experience, researches the show, and makes sure their creative team's vision is being properly executed. We're having a full, expecting a full house for the show's um, regular audience attendance. Um, we're open to the general public. People from the community can come. Um, my parents are going to see it. It's the first time they've like seen a show live that I've done here, which is crazy. I didn't even know. I feel like I'm just going to be like, a puddle of tears on opening night. While last year was full of challenges, the theater program innovated and made the best of the year. Walter Chan, assistant professor of dramaturgy and theater studies, said that the virtual platform offered new opportunities in the world of theater. While live performances could not happen, uh, live, that, that does not mean that theater stopped because the virtual platform actually offered a lot of different kinds of opportunities. So there were a lot of um, virtual readings, virtual performances, virtual collaborations, and things that couldn't, well, not couldn't be done before, but were not really thought of beforehand. While, yes, live theater as it used to happen could not happen in lockdown and, uh, and, um, and before uh, things started opening up again, Artists, theater artists, uh, kept working. They kept being engaged. They kept seeking new opportunities or new ways to create performances. Looking back on the stuff we did in fall 2020, it's remarkable. Like, I'm so proud of what we were able to accomplish. Um, production design students especially um, really just came through um, designing different backgrounds for Zoom. Um, our stage managers worked in, this, in a broadcasting system called OBS where they were able to live stream. The actors just like having, using what was in their houses to make props that just felt real and being coached by the designers of how to make it all work for the show. It really was remarkable what we were able to do on Zoom. Junior Quinn Whitman, a theater studies student and one of two assistant directors for the show Rent, described the shift to the digital platform last year. So digital theater as a medium is wonderful, and there are so many really cool things you can do. Uh, we did uh, She Kills Monsters online, and that was really wonderful, and we were able to do so many visual things that people you can't do on Zoom shows, and you absolutely can. It's the transition when we weren't expecting to have to do these shows online that will, that was a little bit difficult, but we still managed to create like really impactful Walter talked about the importance of connecting with the audience and other actors as crucial to fostering authentic, believable relationships. Being virtual and socially distant was challenging to navigate and required innovation and creative thinking. It's very, very challenging acting uh, just to a computer screen. After the productions, um, there was usually a talkback where the dramaturg moderator would um, talk with the cast and, and the designers and other members of the creative team. And um, yes, all the performers shared just how difficult it was to um, do everything just for the camera uh, or a um, lighting, like different techniques that they, that they had to use uh, in order to create chemistry even through the screen. Coming back, I, I came back to campus in the spring. Operating within the COVID restrictions was necessary, of course, Like, but it was at the same time so challenging. Like, I worked on a show called The Trojan Women, which is about um, 
human trafficking and to tell a story with that much heightened emotion and no one being able to touch one another or get within six feet of one another and couldn't hand a prop for one person to the next. It was very challenging. And then Head Over Heels, the musical we did, try do that, but also dance, you know, and sing. I'm so proud of what we were able to pull off last year in the face of just, like, such adversity um, while keeping everyone safe, while making sure that, like, everyone's mental health and physical health was being taken care of to the best degree. Um, so it's been very strange coming back to business as usual in a way where we still have masks and rehearsals. We're still cleaning. We're still sanitizing everything. But, you know, just the thrill of seeing two actors be able to actually hold hands is just, its there's nothing like it. It's so special. The 2021 fall season includes three main shows, House of Desires, Rent, and The Other Shore. The theater department has a board that decides the shows for the season every year, and many factors influence what gets chosen. Students and faculty all have a say in the selection process. We in the Department of Theater Arts, we have a season selection committee, uh, which comprises of members, faculty or teaching staff members from each area. Um, and there are many, there are many areas, uh, performance, musical theater, theater arts management, BA in theater studies, um, theater production and design, and also students. So we have a member, either faculty or teaching staff member from each area and also a student representative to try to create a season that can serve our students in the most effective and artistically rewarding way. Uh, also, um, and, and a season that can fulfill the student learning objectives um, for, for everyone involved. The first show, House of Desires, was written by a female playwright, Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. The show has elements of a romantic comedy as well as some drama. It was written in 1683, but still has themes that are important in the present day. House of Desires is set in the 1600s in Spain and is about um, a um, series of misadventures that some no Spanish nobles have as they try to balance the desire to marry for love and to protect their, their reputation. So it follows um, Doña Ana um, as she tries to trick um, various people in her life so that she can marry the man that she wants. And hilarity ensues. The issue of the play is um, trying to balance how other people see you and how you want to be seen. Um, so it's about preserving a sense of honor. It's about portraying a self that other people will approve of and how that goes against maybe what your heart really desires, which I think is very relevant. It's also um, a lot of issues surrounding the women in the play remain relevant of people really just perceiving them as beautiful and desiring them because they're beautiful and not because they are extremely intelligent and not being able to believe that their desires lay not with getting there. There's a lot of issues of, of social class and how your place in society affects how people treat you and perceive you and how that contradicts with what you may want in your heart. They are very timeless themes, even though they are very, very specific to a certain time period. Um, I think that people can still relate to the idea of like having to balance what's expected of you versus what you really want. Quinn talked about the conversations they have in their production room and how they think the theme of rent is perfect for the current times. 
says they have loved the show Rent since they were a child and pinpointed the exact moment they felt that theater would finally feel like it was back. So there's a moment in the first 10 minutes of Rent where there's a full blackout. They, they, they are uh, squatting in an apartment that they do not um, have the right to be in at that moment and the power cuts out and then the next moment is a burst of light and all of the ensemble comes running onto the stage and life is like they, we watch the actors and the lighting and the set all breathe life onto the stage. And it's that moment of isolation and then that powerful moment. And I've always loved that moment, even seven years ago when I first listened to Red. I was like, ah, that's the moment. And I think audiences, when they see that, like it's going to be electric. It is such a show to come back to and to come back with. Because a lot of people know it, or they at least know like seasons of love, but like it's there's a line of uh, connection in an isolating age, and I think like yeah, this is what we come back with, and it's I'm so excited to just watch the audience like get get pulled into the story that I've been like pulled into my whole life. The shows this fall will be open to all students as well as the general public. While the pandemic is not over, having theater in person is a step forward. Walter Chan talked about what he is most excited for this season and brought the conversation back to making theater inclusive for everyone. Performing and entertaining is great, but advancing the field of theater is one of the most important parts of being back. Uh, I mean, I'm very excited that we are back. Of course, I mean, the pandemic isn't over, so we all need to be very careful, and especially in theater where there is a lot, I mean, collaboration is um is the nature of theater. Yes, it's so we all have to work close together. But what I'm most looking forward to, how can we work together to help theater or to advance theater to the next stage so that theater is a form that's more equitable, there's more representation of um, underrepresented or marginalized voices, it's more of an, more, more of an ex- inclusive inclusive practice so all these very serious profound and um and timely discussions that we've had uh in the department in the profession all across the world actually how can the theater that we produce from now advance theater as a field how can it enrich the field and the community yeah how can it generate more in-depth and meaningful discourse about theater and the society, 
How can it reflect the society that we are living in? It's hard to define it. For WICB News, I'm Caroline Grass. The importance of polling in democratic elections is widely known, but details of what really goes behind the polling process are not always as evident. Correspondent Michael Memis attempts to find out these details in a conversation with Don Levy, the director of New York-based research institute One Pollster. Polls are everywhere, but how are they done, and what can they say about the future? One Pollster in New York is Siena College Research Institute, who does polls in the state as well as other states in the region. I talked to Don Levy, the director of the Institute, to learn more about the method behind this, as well as what it reveals about some key New York State figures. How do you ensure you still are getting the most representative results possible in these polls? We now interview people via multiple methods, not just phone, but uh, via various web techniques. And we always are comparing our sample, the group of people that respond to us, to a representative sample of that geography. So we're basing how different is our sample from that which the census has, uh, has arrived at. In, in our field, uh, we typically, when we are completed with a poll, we will statistically adjust through a process called iterative weighting to adjust the sample that we got to make it look like the national or the regional or the the state sample that we're trying to generalize to. Uh, And we do that by adjusting the uh, the weight of each respondent's answer to make their particular demographic representative of the overall demographic. So simply put, if we don't get enough young people, you know, it tends to be easier to get um, older people than younger people to respond to polls. So if we're supposed to have, you know, let's say 20% of the respondents, you know, under the age of 30 and we get 14%, then we will weight up the young people and weight down the older people. It's interesting that, you know, we're concerned not just with having a poll or a sample that is representative by demographics, but in today's world, we have to have people who are representative by their ideological stance as well. Because uh, over the last several years, we have found that people on the the right side of the political ledger tend to be even uh, systematically less inclined to participate in public opinion polls. In part, um, we believe that's due to the label that's been affixed to, I guess it would affix to you, it would affix to me, that being that the media is somehow fake and biased. So there's more of a hesitancy on the part of the people on the right end of the spectrum than on the left to participate in in polls. So we've begun to weight by ideology as well, um, not just by race, ethnicity, age, education, and income as we had in the past. I know after the 2016 election, there was a lot of skepticism towards these polls because it predicted Clinton would win and Trump ended up winning, I guess. What is your response to that? And I guess what changes were made, if any, to respond to this criticism? Well, I mean, that's a big question. There was uh, the problem that existed in polling was in state polling, not national polling. 
The error that occurred in 2016 primarily was due to not taking into consideration sufficiently educational attainment in the sample. So that was one of the problems in 2016. The other was that there were the states in the great Midwest, the northern Midwest, Michigan, Wisconsin, to some degree, Pennsylvania, were under poll. And those states ended up being the crucial states that provided um, Trump with a victory over Clinton. So there just wasn't a big enough sample. Obviously, two big scandals with former Governor Andrew Cuomo, the nursing home scandal and the sexual harassment accusations, and then just James report. I guess, could you talk about how Cuomo was affected in terms of like polling wise, how that shifted as a result of those two scandals? During, you know, the pandemic period, um, New Yorkers tended to feel as though Andrew Cuomo was doing a very good job addressing the pandemic. During the period of time when he was beholding his daily news conferences, he had a tremendous amount of public support. In fact, you know, he, his public support rose from where it had been prior to the pandemic. As things moved on and uh, the question about the manner in which he and his administration handled uh, moving patients into nursing homes initially, and then subsequent to that, releasing data about what happened to those people, uh, that was one area where, you know, we'd ask a question, overall, do you th- how good of a job do you think Andrew Cuomo has done managing New York through the pandemic? And he would get, you know, very high numbers. He'd get numbers around 60, 65% that were approved. But the one number that he would get that would be uh, highly negative would be his handling of nursing homes. So that dragged on his, his popularity. Fast forward to when the first allegations about sexual harassment came forward, then again, that threw his support, you know, moving negatively. At first, New Yorkers were hesitant to say that they believed that he had committed sexual harassment. A small plurality initially believed it, um, but a large percentage of New Yorkers said, I just don't know. You know, finally, when the uh, AG's report was released and, you know, virtually every single political figure in New York called for his resignation, his numbers, you know, just fell right, you know, through the bottom. But interestingly, at the same time, we said, well, looking back over the last 10 years, Andrew Cuomo was governor for a very long time. Um, Looking back over the last 10 years, do you think Cuomo did an excellent, good, fair, or poor job as governor? And here, despite the fact that 67% said he should have resigned, we find that 50% say he did an excellent or good job as governor. Moving on to Kathy Hochul, who's now the governor of New York, former lieutenant governor. And in terms of polling, it looks like she has the most positive reception, but a ton of people are undecided or I don't know. And I get that she's new. But how does that expect to change over time? And where do you think that will break in terms of approving or disapproving of her? You know, I think that Kathy Hochul was largely unknown. You know, the job of lieutenant governor of the state of New York has no specific job description. Kathy Hochul was an extremely active lieutenant governor. Uh, She probably went to more ribbon cuttings than either you or I could even imagine. But in terms of the general population of the state, she was not well known. Uh, And when we would occasionally poll Kathy Hochul while she was lieutenant governor, the vast majority of New Yorkers said, I have no opinion. I don't know anything about her. So, you know, instantly she becomes uh, the governor. 
you know, at a time as we just were discussing, when the uh, voters of the state of New York were kind of of the mind of anybody but Cuomo. In terms of the reception that Hochul has been given, uh, the reception has been has been positive. People are willing to give her a chance. You know, they see her as more collaborative than was uh, than was Cuomo. They tend to feel as though she has sufficient experience. Uh, they're excited about there being the first woman governor of the state. She enters a period right now where almost instantly she's going to be in competition for not just being elected governor, but to compete for the Democratic nomination for governor. When we ask people, as things that stand now, would you vote to elect Kathy Hochul, prefer someone else, or that you don't know, only a third, 36%, say, yeah, 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 I'm prepared to reelect Kathy Hochul as, uh, as governor. You know, so that leaves about a third saying they want someone else, about a third saying, I don't know yet. I'll have to wait and see. I thank Don for taking the time to talk with me. This was just touching the surface as the world of polls is so large and there is so much data to organize and analyze. There should be a lot of polls coming out soon about the 2022 midterms, especially in regards to the governor's race. For WICB News, I'm Michael Memes. That's all for tonight's edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org, and if you'd like to listen to past stories, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear full shows anytime, anywhere. Also, subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager Connor Hibbert, and Programming Director Lou Baron. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director Himadri Seth and this week's correspondents Christian Maitri and Jordan Broken. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Noah Ron Ressler, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.